Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. This is a special day for us. This is a special anniversary program. You may not know this, but uh, this is our two-year anniversary of Proclaiming the One. We're starting our third year, first Sunday in Advent. The uh, names and the players have changed, but the one that we proclaim has not. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for you. We're looking at the readings for the one-year series. Today, we look at the first Sunday in Advent. Lift up your heads. The King is coming. Who is the King? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Pastor Moline is with us now. He wasn't a year ago. Vicar Bader is with us now. He wasn't a year ago. He was a student in Fort Wayne. Pastor Moline, where were you roughly this time last year, Thanksgiving a year ago? Well, actually, uh, exactly a year ago when we're recording this, I was in Jerusalem, um, actually seeing some of the places that we're going to talk about right now. I just had a picture from my Facebook feed that came up of me uh, standing before Jerusalem's walls in the uh, sunset light, and that really brings a a big meaning to the hymn, Jerusalem the Golden. Uh, it's just a beautiful place to go visit. Okay, and uh, aside from your worldwide adventures, where were you serving the people of God? I was uh, up in North Dakota, don't you know? Yeah, well, we're we're working really hard to get his uh, Nebraska accent back instead of the uh, North Dakota, don't you know, accent. But it'll come. It'll come. He's born and raised here. And uh, we are privileged to serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church here in Lincoln, Nebraska. The first Sunday in Advent, it kind of catches some people off guard. Doesn't really seem like an Advent-y theme or maybe what we have in our mind as what Advent means and what themes of Advent should be uh, needs to be changed just a little bit too. Our introit is a portion of Psalm 25, one of my all-time great psalms, favorite psalms. Vicar, take it away. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. My integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. Seems like we have a lot of waiting there, Pastor. What are we waiting for? Yeah, the theme of... uh Advent is uh, waiting for Christ to come, and uh, we wait for him to come in several different ways, uh, but that's the main thing, waiting for the Savior, for the Messiah. Okay, and uh, so why why is he taking so long in coming? What's the problem? Well, um, 
it, it all depends on perspective uh, as far as him coming uh, and taking a long time or not. Uh, God is uh, working through history, through events, through all sorts of things to uh, have Christ come uh, to Jerusalem to save us from our sins. He uh, works right now in our church world today so that Christ comes to us in his word and sacrament in the divine service. And then we are ultimately waiting uh, for Christ to come again the last day. And I think that's the main uh, thrust of us as Christians today is Christ's second coming. But the reason God's waiting for that is that uh, more and more might hear the word and believe it and have faith and thus be saved and receive eternal life in heaven, uh, that God's patience is uh, allowing more and more to be saved. So could we say then that the life of a Christian is a life of waiting? Is that a fair way to uh, characterize it? I think so. I think that's what we're doing all the time. We're waiting for uh, the time when Christ will take us out of this world of suffering, sorrow, pain, uh, to be with him in his kingdom where everything will be hunky-dory and happy forever and uh, we'll be at peace with God forever. Seems to me that we pray in the Lord's Prayer a petition to help us in the midst of our waiting, deliver us from evil. How, how does that tie in with our discussion here, uh, Vicar? Deliver us from evil. Literally, uh, well, this world is evil, what we have to endure and live in right now. So every time we pray that, uh, we're praying for one of two things. Either that the Lord would give us a blessed death in the faith when our days of uh, pilgrimage here have ended, and he takes us immediately to be with him in heaven, or that Jesus Christ would come again for his last or second coming to judge the living and the dead and take all of us who believe to inherit the new earth which he will make for us. So as we are waiting for either Christ to come uh, in his power and might and glory and take us to heaven, or for our own personal and individual death, God teaches us the correct posture. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Pastor, um, help me out here. How do I lift up my soul? Well, we uh, come before God in prayer. Uh, we tell him what things are going on. Uh, for example, I'm dealing with this difficulty or this challenge in the Psalms. You read that all the time where David says, uh, my enemies are against me, they surround me, etc., uh, etc., et we come before God and we say, here's what's going on, God, and you have promised to us to care for us, to provide for us, and to give us salvation uh, through your Son, through our Savior. And so, uh, in a way, we're kind of holding God to his promises uh, when we come before him in prayer and we lift up to him the things going on in our life. Uh, we, we can't do that unless God has first made promises to us that we can say, here's what you've promised to do, God. We have a... Uh as we're, as we're fixing our eyes, our ears, our bodies, our minds, our souls, everything on the one who loves us and has promised to save us, save us from our sin, save us from our enemies, the uh, word that God gives us here in Psalm 25, make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. What, what is all this uh, knowing and teaching 
going on here, Pastor? Why, why do I need that in the midst of my waiting? Well, because everything we face in this world declares or, or wants us to, to not think that there is a God or that if we do have a God, that he doesn't care for us. Therefore, we need to be reminded time in and time again uh, that God is providing for us, that he does care for us, and that uh, uh, he is in charge of what's going on in the world. And even um, we hold him to the promises, needing him to remind us of them over and over and over again. Right before that, you see, we have that promise there twice. Uh, in you I trust, let me not be put to shame. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. We won't be put to shame in God. And so we ask him to make us know that, to teach us that, to lead us in that promise uh, so that we can always be reminded of it through the word uh, preached by pastors, read in the scriptures, uh, and given to us by his grace. So the, the shame that the psalmist is talking about there is the shame of our sin? Is that what we're talking about? Exactly what it is, uh, and the, the shame of our sin that leads to death. Uh, it's the same sort of shame you felt, you know, uh, when you did something against your parents' word when you were a kid and you got caught. You know, my uh, uh, two-year-old daughter uh, demonstrates that when uh, yesterday uh, she uh, got out the paint and she tried to paint all by herself, and we caught red carpet uh, in the basement. And uh, she looked down on the ground. She was sad. She she knew what she had done was wrong. That's the sort of shame only uh, magnified and multiplied that we feel before God. He's caught us in our sin. Okay. So there is a good shame with regard to contrition and repentance here. It appears that our enemies are throwing our sins in our face and causing us a different kind of shame, uh, a guilt, a shame, uh, an embarrassment that uh, either God doesn't exist or our sins are too big for God. And so here God teaches us again and again and again and again that his forgiveness, his redemption, his salvation is full and perfect and pure. There, uh, uh, toward the end of our introit, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Whose integrity and uprightness are we talking about? Are we talking about uh, picking ourselves up by our own bootstrap, cleaning up our act, doing a better job, and uh, if I can get my own integrity and uprightness uh, shaped up, then God will love me, which is kind of the way the world talks. Or is there something else, Pastor? It's uh, so much more than just uh, pulling us up by our bootstraps because it's talking about Jesus. Uh, we cannot by our own reason or strength believe in Jesus or come before God. Uh, he instead has purchased and redeemed us not with gold or silver but with his holy precious blood, innocent suffering and death that we might be his own. His integrity and uprightness covers all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame uh, like we were talking about earlier. And in fact, I would say the difference between the uh, the bad shame and the good shame is trusting the promise of God that uh, that shame is taken care of by the integrity and uprightness of Jesus Christ. And, Vicar, when we have the integrity and uprightness of God working for us, how does that shape and form our integrity and uprightness? 
Yeah, to lift us up too, so that we will want to do what the will of God is. We can read the Ten Commandments and learn that uh, we are to honor those in authority over us. We are not to hurt or harm our neighbors in any way. We shouldn't covet. We shouldn't steal. Uh, These are things that Christians, knowing that they are forgiven of all their sins by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, should try to keep and uh, should try to instill that same virtue into their children, trusting in the promises of God that he forgives all our sins. So one of the key themes in Advent is waiting, waiting for the one who has come, who has lived, died, and risen again, ascended victoriously in heaven, waiting for him to come back again in power and might and glory. In the midst of our waiting, we have all kinds of cares and worries and problems and enemies and voices telling us that our waiting is in vain. And here in Psalm 25, we are encouraged to lift up our souls, our very beings, to the Lord who has kept his promises in the past, who keeps his promises now, and who we can count on to keep his promises in the future. We lift up our heads, O mighty souls. Why? Because the King of glory is coming, and he's coming for you, and he's coming for me. This is Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. We need to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to look at our gospel reading, a gospel reading that looks like it should fit in Holy Week, not in Advent. What in the world is up with that? When we come back, we're going to look at Matthew 21, 1 to 9. Don't go away. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Albert Bader. We're taking a look today at the readings for the first Sunday in Advent. It is an anniversary program for us today. We're beginning the third year of our programming. We've got two full years behind us. And if you'd like to check out any past programs, you can go to the KNNA website, www.thecross.com. 957.org. Go to the program archive section, click on Proclaiming the One, and lo and behold, there you're going to have past programs. You can catch up on a particular Sunday at the church here that you'd like to look at. You can hear a part or an episode that uh, you may have missed, and you can check out all the wonderful programming that we have here on KNNALP 95.7 in Lincoln, Nebraska. The Gospel reading for Advent 1 surprises some people, and uh, maybe it uh, 
maybe this is a bigger deal for preachers than it is for the people who sit in the pew. I'm not sure. But Matthew 21, 1 to 9, historically, is taking place when, Pastor? Takes place uh, on Palm Sunday. Takes place on Palm Sunday. Well, we have many, many weeks in the church year before we get to Palm Sunday. And uh, we want to address, at some point in time, why a Palm Sunday reading for our first Sunday in the church year, the first Sunday in Advent. But before we address that question, let's hear the reading. Vicar, take it away. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humbled and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! You know, this is one of those readings, Pastor, that uh, I, I wish we had seven or eight or nine segments to be able to do justice to what's going on here, all the different things that are happening. Uh, first of all, I left, uh, I left a question kind of hanging, and I think we owe it to our hearers to, uh, to address this first, even though we're going to have to unpack it a little bit later. Why a Palm Sunday reading on the first Sunday in Advent? Advent has all uh, to do with the coming of the Messiah. That's even what the word means, ad waini, uh, or uh, coming towards us or to us, or uh, uh, that's the Latin translation of Advent. And the most important thing that God comes to do is to rescue us and save us from our sins. He comes uh, to go to the cross. And so, it is important for us during the season of Advent to understand that's why he's coming. Uh, especially, you know, we like to get sentimental about Christmas. And, uh, you know, we already have the uh, hymns playing on the radio stations. And I don't mean our radio station, all the other ones that are the Christmas hymns, you know. We, we play Christmas hymns year-round, so you can't <laughs> single us out. Right. Um, we already have them playing, you know, uh, Old Little Town of Bethlehem. And we like to think of... Um, uh, Jesus as a little baby Jesus, as a, maybe a movie has uh, pointed out to us. But we can't separate the coming of Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem with the going of Jesus to the cross in Jerusalem. They are intimately linked. The whole reason that Christ comes is to die for sin. And so it's good for us to have that before us as we consider Christ's birth. And uh, as we even think of the name of this program, Proclaiming the One, uh, when we have a given Sunday in the church here, when we have a given text that we're talking about, we are always, in some way, shape, or form, we are always proclaiming 
the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for poor, miserable sinners like you and me. That is the heart, core, soul, and center of all Scripture. That is the heart, core, center, and soul of every particular Sunday or festival or celebration in the church here. And uh, I love what you said, that uh, the materialism and all the things that that really kind of sweep us away at this time of the year, we need to be almost shocked to have our focus back on Jesus. And here, not only on uh, gentle Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, but Jesus riding on, riding on, riding on, to die, to die for the sin of the world. That's the coming that we have here in this particular text. Now, I want to get into uh, some of the specifics here. Um, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. Now, you would have thought that we would have had that particular reading from Zechariah as our Old Testament reading. We will on Palm Sunday. But uh, what is the prophet, Zechariah, teaching the people to wait for and to lift up their soul to God for? Pastor? Well, um, he's ultimately teaching us to wait for the coming uh, king who will be the king who will sit on the throne of David forever, who will be the Messiah who saves us from our sin, uh, and what to watch for at his coming uh, that will set him apart and so you know who it is. And so, again, uh, the prophet here is teaching us about Jesus, telling us to wait for Jesus. It's almost like uh, everything in this text uh, and all of Scripture is there to teach us about Jesus and uh, his coming to rescue us. Well, this this uh, this king, uh, behold, your king is coming to you. This, uh, this ties in very, very well with some of the conceptions of what the Messiah would be, a mighty king who would come in and who would wield his uh, sword and uh, lead his thousands and ten thousands of soldiers and be a military conqueror and set up a military kingdom. And Zechariah says, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Vicar, that's the craziest kind of a king that I've ever heard. What kind of a king is humble and mounted on a donkey? Uh, A king would be bold and brazen and mounted on a stallion. What's what's happening here? Uh, Jesus, meek and mild, even though he is the man who is going to save us from all of our sins, uh, does not make his kingdom really known in that way. He could have done exactly what the people wanted him to do, to be an earthly king, to save them from the hand of the Roman enemies and to establish the kingdom of Israel. That's not what Jesus came here to do. Uh, He came here to live and eventually to humble himself to the point of death death for you and for me to take away all of our sins so yeah he's not mounted on a white stallion as you see on the movies but uh 
on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What does this tell us about Jesus, the uh, Savior for our sin, that he comes in humility, Pastor? Um, this just seems co- so contrary to every aspect of the conquering hero, the conquering king. How can our conquering king come in humility? It is. It's such a great reversal that we uh, watch and see here. Uh, we have all those ancient kings uh, that ride into, uh, so Vicar mentioned uh, the Romans. You know, the, the Caesar would ride into Rome on a chariot uh, with all of his enemies before him and his troops uh, in their finest outfits, and they would ride through the, the whole city's streets with uh, confetti flying and the people cheering. Uh, or you have uh, uh, the Babylonians with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Ishtar Gate. You can see it in Berlin with all the beautiful blue tiles and the lions that are there uh, on those tiles. All of it meant to convey power, as if uh, showing off the things that you have, your wealth, uh, your army, your military, that that's where your power is located. And God doesn't need to do that. His power is uh, beyond anything this world can really comprehend or understand. Um, he's going to show his power by setting aside all of that stuff and still being able to conquer death and sin and the devil and the grave. And so he has no need for all the trappings of humanity uh, to show authority and power. His power is made great in weakness. We have that from the Apostle Paul. And uh, we see that played out right here before us. Uh, I want to, I wanna, you know, we've got the whole Palm Sunday scene here, and they're cutting down the branches from the trees. But I want to I talk just a little bit about what they say, what the people say as they greet Jesus coming in riding on the donkey. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Vicar, um... What's all this Hosanna stuff? What are the, what are the people really saying? Hosanna, that is, save us now. Uh, save us from all of our enemies. Save us from the things of this world that are trying to overpower us. Uh, of course, the people at this time were thinking, save us from the Romans. But we know first and foremost that Jesus came not to save us from our earthly persecutors, but to save us from our sin, so that we might not just live here in this life, but eternally with him in paradise. Pastor, the, um, uh, we don't have a lot of time left in this segment, but um, we sing these words, Hosanna, 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 in the divine service. How does the place where we sing that song, from Matthew 21 here, connect us to our coming Lord Jesus Christ? Um, it has a lot to do with uh, the the Lord's Supper and where um, Christ is coming to be present to us. I talked earlier in the first segment, I think, about three times that Christ comes. He comes uh, in uh, uh, Jerusalem to die on the cross. He comes to us in the divine service and word and sacrament. And he also is promised to come again uh, in the future to bring this world to its end and take us to be with him in his kingdom forever. And so the place we sing it in the divine service is right before we have the Lord's Supper, when he comes to us in his body and blood uh, to forgive us all of our sins uh, and to create and sustain faith in us.
Jesus comes riding into our sanctuary, not on a colt, the foal of a donkey, but he comes riding in on bread and wine, the very body and blood of Jesus crucified and risen for you, for your forgiveness, and for the life of the world. Jesus has come, Jesus comes, and Jesus is coming. That's Advent, and that's what we're looking at here on the first Sunday in Advent. When we come back, we're going to take a look at our Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 23, 5 to 8. Don't go away. at noon on KNNA. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline. Vicar Albert Bader. We serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. This is our anniversary celebration. We have two years of Proclaiming the Year broadcast behind us, and we are starting a new church year. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Advent. We'd also like to invite you to worship with us at Good Shepherd. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 10.30 with Sunday School for All Ages in between, Wednesday evenings at 6.30, and during the Advent season, we have a fellowship meal that serves from 5 to 6.15. Come, join us, eat some food, listen to the Word of God, and prepare for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus. In this segment, we want to take a look at our Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. Vicar, please. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought us up out of the who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Pastor, we have uh, we have some familiar words, 
excuse me, we have some familiar words here that are kind of surrounded by some unfamiliar words that have a lot of historical stuff going on. And I think sometimes we're too quick to look past the uh, the history, the geography, the uh, isogy or boy, now you got me saying it, isagogics of, uh, of a particular text. And I think here in Jeremiah, it is especially helpful. You want to you wanna help our hearers out with uh, some of the background here? Yeah, none of the uh, scripture stories actually take place in a vacuum. They all take place in a historical context, in a real world, with real people uh, living and dying. So it's always helpful to know what's going on in the wider world. Uh, At the time that Jeremiah is writing here, uh, the kingdom of Israel uh, had already kind of disappeared, been taken away um, by the Assyrian Empire. And um, the kingdom of Judah is essentially a uh, uh, dependent state, a dependent state that is uh, stuck between Egypt, which is a strong empire, and the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which is also growing in strength uh, and expanding as well. And so Judah... Uh, capital uh, Jerusalem is stuck in between these two places and um, really can't survive without either one of those. Um, and there's constantly wars going back and forth between the uh, the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and the battleground oftentimes is uh, in Israel, as what we would say is Israel today. In fact, uh, many, many, many battles uh, near the city of Megiddo, which is where we get Armageddon uh, in the book of Revelation, because of all those battles uh, where that roadway uh, takes place. There's a, a main road, like I said, that goes between Egypt and Babylon, and it goes right through Israel. So Judah... Uh, is dependent upon Babylon and uh, supposed to pay um, tribute to Babylon. Uh, and essentially, Babylon makes all the rules and the decisions. Of course, the uh, the challenge is when you're stuck between two powerful empires, which one do you side with? And uh, there's uh, coming a time here towards the end of the book of Jeremiah where Judah decides it's going to switch sides and turn its back upon Babylon, and Babylon doesn't like that. And so they come and they besiege the city of Jerusalem in 586 and destroy it. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, conquers it and becomes uh, the de facto ruler uh, and... Uh, Uh, takes over the place until uh, much, much later uh, when the Greeks come, and that'll be about 150, 200 years later uh, that the Greeks then conquer the area of Judah. So it's a difficult time. There's a lot of uncertainty for the people living there. Uh, A large part of the money that they make and the food that they grow and uh, the goods that they have, they are supposed to send off to Babylon, uh, which is east. Uh, It's a Upon the Euphrates River and the Tigris River, uh, the capital is pretty close to modern-day Baghdad uh, that they're shipping off all of their things to. And it's not a lot of hope when you're essentially a slave. I mean, that's the way the the Babylonians viewed um, the people that they conquered and the people that were dependent to them. They had a tradition that uh, when you were conquered by the Babylonian army, you would uh, scoop up large pots of your soil, and you would take it all the way over to Babylon, and you would dump that soil down on the ground in front of the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, whoever, and you would bow down uh, before the king on your own soil before uh, 
the uh, the ruler of Babylon and say, we are now your, essentially, possession, your slave, your um, your goods. We belong to you now. We're saying that our land belongs to you as well, which is why we brought some of it with us. So it's difficult, and this is all going on, and in the midst of it, the people of Israel are worshiping false gods. They're uh, uh, worshiping Baal. They uh, are turning away from the true God because we as people like to think that um, if our God's the real God, he's going to show it by making our church the biggest, our nation the strongest, uh, or anything like that. And that's not the way God works. We even talked about that with our gospel lesson. Human trappings of power and authority have no interest uh, to God. He knows he has the true power. He doesn't necessarily have to show it. And so the people, seeing that their nation is getting poorer and that they're not really independent any longer, uh, they're turning their back on God. And therefore, Jeremiah gives this word from God, a word of promise about the future, and a coming king, a savior, uh, who will take care of all these issues, really, Uh, take us to a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom where we won't have foreign armies invaded, uh, a kingdom where uh, there will be peace, eternal peace forever. So... So, so we have uh, we have both political and spiritual issues going on. Politically, socio socioeconomically, they're being squeezed from both sides uh, because they think God has abandoned them. They are experimenting. Yeah, you might say in today's language, they're seeking. They're seeking where they might want to go, seeking where they might want to worship, seeking what kind of gods uh, might uh, look attractive to them. And so they are uh, playing around with all of this idol worship. They still want to hold on to the one true God, uh, but they're not really sure if that's a good idea or not. So in the midst of this, God raises up Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, because of the message that he gives. But here he's not weeping. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. There's no waffling there. The days are coming when I will raise up for David. God is doing the doing, and he's going to raise up for David, meaning David's people, the kingdom, a righteous branch, and he shall deal or he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. Pastor, how did the people hear that word of God coming out of Jeremiah's mouth? Well, you know, it's got to be difficult for them to hear that, uh, especially knowing that uh, Babylon is growing in power, Egypt is waning, and that uh, it's just a matter of time until they are subject to uh, Babylon. The Battle of Carchemish, uh, which had taken place, you know, about 15, 20 years before, uh, had kind of weakened Egypt to the point where everybody knew Babylon was going to win. And so there might be this uh, immediate thought that um, Nebuchadnezzar uh, or the Babylonian king is going to be your ruler. And here comes God in the face of it saying, I'm going to raise up for David a righteous branch. Uh, 
the house of David's going to survive uh, this rule by Babylon. The house of David is going to keep existing, even though it surely doesn't appear that way. And of course, we as Christians know that that's going to take place in the person and work of Jesus, uh, the branch of uh, Jesse's stump uh, that uh, grows into uh, the mighty kingdom of God that we live and exist in today. So we have uh, two word pictures here, that righteous branch. So we have the uh, tree imagery, and I wish we had a whole program just to talk about all the tree imagery in Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament. But God speaks a definitive word. Don't listen to your ears. Don't listen to your eyes. Don't even listen to your pocketbook. I am going to send one, a righteous branch, a righteous king, who is going to do everything that all of your previous kings before you have not done. He's going to be kind and just and fair and righteous. And, oh, by the way, he's also going to be your savior. Right. And And the house of David. The house of David that you are seeing being squeezed and pulled, and you are wondering if the house of David has any kind of a future whatsoever, this house will reign and will live and will exist forever. Believe these promises. Cling to these promises. They're hearing these words while they're on foreign soil. And the very last word of our text is, then they shall dwell in their own land. In their own land. Now, Vicar... You're a farm boy. How significant is it to have your own land? It's pretty awesome because then uh, you get freedom. Uh, You can do what you want. You can kind of live the way that is right. And uh, you have the opportunity to do that. Whereas if you're stuck on somebody else's ground, you got to obey somebody else's rules and what they want done on it and stuff like that. And you probably have to pay them rent, too, don't you? <laughs> and you got to pay rent, yeah. Yeah, or a share of the profits, a share of the crops. So you're always beholding. You are never free. You are always in debt in some way, shape, or form. Now, Pastor, translate that to the land that we're talking about here because we're not talking about 160 acres in Worms, Nebraska. What are we talking about when we have these land promises in Scripture? Well, immediately we're talking about the land of Judah and Israel, uh, which exists in the uh, edge of the Fertile Crescent along the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 40, 50 miles wide and about 100 miles north-south. Um, and it's the land that you have to travel through for all trade between Egypt uh, and modern-day Turkey or Greece uh, and also over there to Babylon in the east. And so, in a way, it's a very valuable land uh, in terms of uh, being a ruler, getting the goods and the money and the taxes for people traveling through. But ultimately, this land that uh, is being promised is not a worldly land. It's not like the land of Israel Uh, is more holy or more important to God than, say, 160 acres in Nebraska. The ultimate promised land is the land where we get to dwell with God face-to-face without the sorrow and suffering and uh, worries of this world, the land uh, we oftentimes call heaven, uh, the, the world that is yet to be Uh, revealed and yet to come for us. I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Home is where the heart is. Well, where is your heart? God says, lift up your heads to me 
as you wait for my coming, as you wait for my return, cling to my word and cling to my promises. This you can take to the bank. The righteous branch, the king, Jesus has come. He's come for you. Your salvation is complete in him. Believe it and wait. This is Proclaiming the One. We've got one more segment, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at our epistle reading for the first Sunday in Advent, Romans 13, 11 to 14. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Albert Bader. We serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we take a look at the upcoming readings in our church here. Today, our anniversary show, we begin our third year of Proclaiming the One. We've got two years in the archives, so check them out. We're looking at the readings for the first Sunday in Advent. In segment one, we looked at the introit for Advent, Advent One. In segment two, we looked at the gospel reading, Matthew 21, 1 to 9. In segment three, we looked at the Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 23, 5 to 8. And now in our final segment for the day, we want to take a look at our epistle reading, Romans 13, 11 to 14. Now you think about all the, the different themes and things that we've talked about. We have a Savior who is a king, but he is unlike all the other kings. We have a Savior who is a righteous branch, the fulfillment of prophecy. We have a Savior who is Hosanna, the one who saves us and saves us now. And while we anticipate the return of Jesus, we wait. We are attacked by many enemies. We are attacked by many voices. We cling to the word of God. We trust in him for our salvation, our forgiveness, and so that we are not put to shame. We want him to teach us and guide us every step of the way. So often in our one-year series of readings, and I would say about 98% of the time this holds true, the epistle reading for the day is a practical application of everything that we have learned in all of the other uh, readings, all of the other texts for the day. And so keep that in mind as Vicar reads Romans 13, 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay, so we do have some uh, 
oh, what most people would talk about, uh, sanctification or third use of the law kind of things here. But before we get to that, um, besides this, you know the time. Uh, that is a rhetorical question, not uh, couched in a question form. You know the time. I think back to my high school days and uh, a very popular rock and roll group called Chicago. Does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody, Does anybody, anybody care? really care? There you go. Very good, Pastor. Very good. Um, well, your folks are about the same age as me, so I'm sure you, you had to endure all of that kind of music growing up. So, you know the time. How do people know the time, and what is the reference that uh, the Apostle Paul is making here as he writes to the Romans? Yeah, you know the time, meaning you know where you're sitting in the timeline, maybe is a way to think about it. Christ has come, he died, and he rose again, and he's promised to come again. And even the word that he says there, uh, salvation is nearer to us every day of our lives in this world, in this existence, we are drawing closer and closer and closer to the second coming of Christ. When he returns with power and judgment, brings this world to its end, raises all the dead, and gives eternal life to me and all believers in him, that day is always getting closer. And when, um, you know, think about like, Tax day is getting closer. You start to get together your documents, and you get closer and closer. You take them over to the guy to get them done. Or when you think about election day getting closer and closer, you start to put signs in your yard. You see more and more ads. Uh, things get more and more urgent from the candidates. Uh, when things draw nearer, you get uh, more and more anxious and prepared for them. And that's kind of the word that... Uh, uh, Paul is saying here, Jesus' return, his second coming, is getting closer and closer and closer. So wake up. Do what you know you need to do. Uh, hear the word, believe the word, prepare for his arrival. The time uh, is coming, is nearer than it was when he first believed. The, uh, the words here tell us to wake up from our sleep. Vicar, what kind of sleep, and again, Paul is writing to Christians here. He's not writing to pagans. He's writing to Christians. What kind of sleep do Christians fall into that the Apostle Paul is warning or shocking to tell us to wake up? Yeah, well, sometimes when sleep is used, it is in terms of death. That is not what the case is here. He's writing to people that are still very much alive. And so he's saying, don't be lulled into sleep. That is, don't be lulled into uh, being content in your sin. Don't be content to live as a pagan and uh, throw off the promises of God because he hasn't come yet. And we don't know when he will come, and so that's why we are called to be patient and wait. And while we're doing that, hold fast to the faith. Don't throw it aside as something that we don't really need. When you're young, go to church. You need it just as much as those who are approaching their 80s and 90s and uh, think about death a little bit more so than we do when we're young. We need to be reminded of these things at all times so that we're not lulled into sleep in false security that we're okay. Nothing's going to come and harm us. So why is it that we have to live good and holy lives? 
eat, drink, and be merry, and then you die. So what difference does it make? Uh, that sounds pretty good and pretty alluring to Christians who, who think maybe God is just uh, trying to keep them from having fun. That's not the case. Pastor Paul uses a metaphor here. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. What is this night-day stuff? Yeah, it has to do with um, darkness and light. Uh, remember, uh, Paul, or uh, sorry, John writes that uh, Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, Paul is alluding to this idea, saying that uh, before Christ came, you know, we were living in the darkness, and there was uh, sin and death, and uh, Satan ruled, and there was all these difficulties. Uh, Christ came and uh, has defeated those things, and now he's promised to come again. And just like, uh, you know, when you get up early to go sit in the duck blind or the deer blind, uh, you can start to see long before the sun actually peaks over the horizon. He's talking the same way here about the return of Christ. Uh, The dawn is here. Christ is almost there, and soon uh, every eye will see him and every knee will bow and uh we're starting to see the glimmer of what that means now. And he's talking about that glimmer being the existence of the church, uh, where we proclaim the word and administer the sacraments. And that's the now but not yet of what the reality will be when Jesus does come again. That's a great word picture, especially we've just experienced a time change here. And so uh, people are seeing that uh, that glimmer of light before the sunrise more often now. People are seeing how the light slowly wanes away. You don't even realize it's happening, and then just all of a sudden, it's dark. And how, how God works in nature, and God here is using these, these pictures in nature to teach us to be ready for Christ's return is imminent. Now, as we wait, and as we know that uh, God is Uh, rousing us from our sleep, our sleep of unbelief, our sleep of lazy and apathetic Christianity. He says, put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Pastor, I thought I didn't do anything for my salvation. In fact, on this program, we talk a lot about the third article of the Apostles' Creed, Luther's meaning. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. So this can't be talking about conversion and coming to faith. The uh, last chapters of Romans, from Romans 12 on, are directed primarily to believers um, What am I called to do in putting on the armor of light and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? I think the way you set this question up is really good. Um, Yeah, Double your pay, right? (laughs) Uh, It's a good way to phrase it because it helps us to understand the way things work. In the um, way that Paul is using the words here, we are able to put on an armor. Now, The thing is, we didn't pay for that armor. We didn't buy it. We didn't uh, purchase it. In the ancient world, you know, it wasn't cheap to have armor. It cost a lot of money to have a blacksmith put it together, to link all the links in the chain mail together. Uh, Armor is an expensive thing that only the richest have. Christ pays the price to get it. He uh, he he uh, builds it for us, and then he gives it to us. And what are you going to do when you have the armor? 
given to you. You're just going to let it sit by your feet? Of course not. You're going to put it on. You're going to wear it so that you're protected from the uh, darts of the enemy and the attack of the enemy. Perhaps even we could see uh, King David in this where Saul gives him the royal armor to put on to go and fight Goliath. Uh, It's not David's armor, um, but yet he still is given that to wear uh, to go off into battle. And so, yeah, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We haven't paid for it. Christ has. But now that we belong to Christ, he allows us to wear that which rightly belongs to him. So we are putting on this armor of light. We are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that a defensive kind of an armor or an offensive kind of an armor? I know we had this discussion when we were talking about the end of Ephesians, seems like just a few weeks ago. So uh, what good is this armor in my life right here and right now? What is both offensive and defensive? Um, you know, when you're in a battle, uh, the armor you have, you use it both to hit the other guy in the head and to also uh, stop the sword from poking you. And so um, it's both of those things. And what good is the armor of Christ? It protects us against the work of Satan. Uh, it uh, allows us to live in the light and not in the darkness and the works of the darkness, which he uh, lays out for us, uh, things like uh, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy. Uh, when we live in Christ, we no longer are servants to these things. We're no longer underneath the power of these things. We belong to Jesus. And so those things uh, ought to watch out for us because we'll have no part of it in Christ. Vicar, we have a laundry list of sins. Um, you're, you're a different, you're a younger generation than Pastor Moline, and you're probably two generations removed from, from an old guy like me. Um, are are these sins a problem today? Are these a problem from from olden days? Uh, what do we have here when we're talking about? Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Uh, are these sins a problem today? There's nothing new under the sun. The same things that sinners have been dealing with since the very beginning, the fall of Adam and Eve. We still struggle with today. These things are always before us. We see them portrayed on TV all the time, and our world would have us to believe that this is the way you are supposed to live your life. Eat, drink, and be merry, but it is not so. We struggle with these things, and we fight against the temptations that they have for us because we know they're not good and proper. They misuse the good gifts that God has given to us. The gifts of sexuality between husband and wife. The gift of good alcohol used in moderation in all these good things. And of good reputation, not having quarreling or jealousy. God gives all these things as a good gift for us to use, not to abuse. That takes us back to our introit. Lead me in your truth and teach me. We are to be taught how to use the gifts of God, and for all the times we have sinfully used them, Christ has bled and died. He is our one Savior from sin. He came, he ascended to heaven following his bloody death and glorious resurrection. He comes to us now in word and sacrament, and he promises he will come again. Power and might and glory. This is Proclaiming the One, the first Sunday in Advent. We'll be back again next week.
Please join us, won't you? And may God richly bless your day and your new year in Christ.